getting used to this new protocol. So, so I just wanted to preface this by saying it's a, I timed it, it's 20 minutes, okay? So if you need to, your stop clock, you can, uh, you can do that. So the, uh, the text this morning was a long text, but the question I'm trying to get at is actually, does Paul have anything to say to us about our environmental crisis? Now, some of you know I am presently involved in preparing a presentation for the Society of Biblical Literature regarding a key text in Paul's letter to the Romans that I believe has serious implications for one, how we view the environment as sacred space. Two, how we are to live in the world as co-participants with all other life and living systems. And three, how are we supposed to cope today when powerful political, economic, cultural, even religious institutions are operating with a different value system? one of self-interest. So what words could Paul possibly speak at such a dire and crucial moment in human history? Or to us here at Mission Hills, as our small band seeks to hold on to, as of highest importance, what Paul and Jesus themselves held important enough that they would risk their lives and ultimately die. What words could be said? Now, complicating this discussion is the way that Christian interpreters have reduced the text from, from which Paul spoke. Traditional readers see Paul the Jew speaking against a Jewish tradition You've heard this as terms of faith versus law, that no Jew of his time would have recognized. Proclaiming an apolitical gospel that challenges nothing other than an individual's private view of morality and God, and proposing that the answer to life's dilemmas today can be summed up with such bumper sticker phrases as, just believe in Jesus, or Jesus is coming soon, are you ready? Or Christ believed is salvation received. So the initial question is how can Paul or anything in the Bible be relevant to a modern problem such as humid generated climate change? My response is that we are indeed in a climate crisis of unfathomable proportions today. But humans have been busy messing up their environment for a long time, even in Paul's day, even long before that. So just two examples, or I'll never get to the text this morning. Mosquito-borne diseases that are a huge threat to public health are not just on the rise today, but have been problematic for thousands of years, mainly due to human-generated environmental changes that have disrupted ecosystems. The city of Rome 
and the surrounding countryside were situated in a low-altitude, well-watered site ideal for growing grapes, grains, and olives. But in the first century, such growth was associated with intensive deforestation driven by the need to clear agricultural land and to harvest timber for construction projects in Rome and, combu and, um, and combustion in Roman metal smelting developments. What resulted was a rise in the water table and an increase in standing water. Reductions in absorption levels led to erosion with huge deposits of topsoil in floodplains like riverbeds and deltas. Now from the written records at the time, we know floods were recorded in 54 BCE, 23 BCE, 15 CE after Christ, as well as frequent low-level flooding or inundations. There was such a runoff that the main harbor of Rome in Ostia had to be abandoned in the first century. In addition, disease was also connected with this flooding due to the fact that sewer and drainage systems back then were one and the same. Floodwaters were associated with ma malaria-carrying mosquitoes. Things got so unhelpful that the Bishop of Ostia Rome's seaside suburb had to relinquish his, possession, his position several centuries later due to unhealthful conditions. Now further, the Pontine area, this is a huge area just south of the um, city of Rome, was a healthy productive region in the fourth century BCE. But by the first century, it had been transformed into marshland due to, among other things, deforestation and road construction. Now, recorded accounts tell us this area, which was a major food supplier for Rome's exploding population, became so insect-infested that farming ceased due to malaria and the population collapsed. The disastrous impact of this human-generated environmental catastrophe lasted all the way up until Mussolini's public works projects in the 20th century were finally able to transform the marshes back into livable cultural space. Now that's one of the reasons Rome had its eye on Egypt and Palestine as a way to feed its urban center that by the first century had, had, um, had reached about a million people. Now to put this in perspective, no other urban center would get this size until the 19th century uh, that the urban center, and that urban center was London. So to say that human-generated environmental issues are new factors only displays an ignorance of history. One more point that needs to be made to contextualize what Paul says regarding the role of imperial rule in the daily lives of people conquered by Rome, um, including the Jews. Now, Rome took control of Palestine 
in 63 BCE, and it designated Herod the Great king of the Jews in 40 BCE. Now, with this change in control came massive requirements for produce and money that came on the backs of already struggling peasants. We're talking about major increase in taxes. But Rome was experiencing deep divisions within its borders and troubles just outside them as well. So when Julius Caesar's nephew, Octavian, took over as emperor and was given authority to put things right, his name was changed to Augustus, meaning majestic. And he was hailed as, now listen to these terms. These terms were used over a generation before Jesus was even born. He was hailed as savior, son of God, one who brought good news, peace and prosperity, and the fulfillment of hope, among others. Of course, this was directed violently towards the conquered peoples and the subjugated peasants. In addition to the empire taking control of people's lives, the emperor came to be an object of worship. Cities would compete to outdo one another in venerating him. Why? So they could receive tax breaks. But again, this was the viewpoint from those on the upper side of Roman society. Now this is important when we think about Paul. How would Paul situate him, himself in society? Was he a part of the 1% or the 99? Did he have middle-class Roman values? Did he perceive himself as a Roman or as one among the conquered and the colonized? How would Paul situate himself? If he were, to, if he were around today, would he resonate with Black Lives Matter or Blue Lives Matter? Or would he ascribe to the issue of, I don't care, no matter? Now again, due to time limitations, I don't have time to discuss this further here. But maybe later, if you're interested, come up and we'll talk at six feet distance. So let's turn to the Roman passage. The location of this passage is at the culmination of Paul's argument in chapters 1 through 8. For context, in chapters 1 through 4, he basically says that Jesus that Jesus' suffering and death on the Roman cross has implications for everyone. In chapters 5 through 8, basically he discusses how Jesus' suffering and death fit into God's plans that God has been implementing from the very beginning. In chapter 5, he discusses believers' suffering. And because it's such a significant and present reality, he returns to it in chapter 8, where he greatly expands on the horizon of suffering. And so that brings us to our passage. So in verse 18, he says that when we reposition our present suffering in a broader context 
of the essential role our hardships play in God's timetable, the phrase is, the present sufferings are not comparable in verse 18, if you're following along. It changes the way we look at it. Now, it doesn't relieve the suffering, but it allows us a better chance to endure it. So here's another question. Now, what was the suffering that he was talking about? Now, this is where Paul, how Paul saw himself in society is absolutely crucial. Each reader has to make a choice on this. But my point is that he is still one of the colonized and oppressed under the heel of Rome. He's speaking from that position. Life was perceived and experienced quite differently by the colonized than by the colonizers. And for those of you that are tuning in on Wednesday nights, this should be very familiar territory, right? In verses 19 and 20, Paul now expands his purview of suffering to include all of creation. And he's been, uh, all of creation that has been taking a beating by humans for so long that she, creation, looks for the, the revelation, the revealing of the children of God. He continues this subjugation to futility was not her desire, was not creation's desire, but the will, and here's the quote, of the one who subjected it. Now the question is, so who's doing this subjecting, this, this subjugating of creation and, and humans as well? Well, down through the centuries, several options have been developed. So here they are, Adam, sin, the devil, or God. Which one are you gonna pick? Well, today the most popular option, believe it or not, is God. But that is problematic for many reasons. And maybe again, for lack of time, this would be an interesting discussion a little later on. But I personally would like to suggest another option who would have been perceived as so powerful, this is in Paul's day, so powerful that even controlling nature was a possibility? I suggest we look to the head of the most powerful force in the history of the world up to that time, Caesar. In Roman society, two institutions had been created to pacify the crowds, grain and games food, and entertainment. So again, for the sake of time, I focus on one part of the entertainment, the gladiatorial, gladiatorial contests. In, uh, in Latin, they're called munera. These contests were between, were between different classes of men, but also between men and wild animals, wild beasts. Accounts, I've, I've read these accounts, accounts at the time show that Rome spent much money and energy capturing the largest and fiercest wild beasts from all over the world so that thousands of animals could be killed at these events in a display simply to show Roman superiority and control over wild nature. And Caesar, as the head of the empire symbolically, represented the source of this control. 
Another question. We're moving along in the text, if you're following along. So why the, why the subjection? Now, one traditional view reasons that God subjected creation to futility and suffering, even against her will, to compel both humans and creation to rely on God for a future redemption. Does that make sense of how the God of Jesus and Paul operates? I think not. Or rather, could Paul be offering a resistant counterpoint to Rome's confidence that Caesar had fulfilled, had already fulfilled the hopes of humankind? Part of the Roman imperial good news, as hope fulfilled, was actually diametrically opposed to the prophetic view of hope. A prophetic view of hope eagerly and actively anticipates a redemption and liberation that has not been as yet fulfilled. Again, Caesar said, I fulfilled. They, Caesar felt that, that he had already established the golden age. In contrast to this prophetic view, Rome uh, proclaimed Caesar as the one who had already fulfilled the hopes for the world peace and plenty. So Caesar, attempting to subjugate as much of nature as he possibly could, proclaimed a false view of hope as having already fulfilled the world's aspirations. So my suggestion is that Caesar, Caesar subjected creation not in hope, but against hope. Paul sees Caesar's actions as contrary to God's, both in his egotistical assertion that the world's hopes have been fulfilled, and in his egotistical assertion that he could fulfill that capacity. The preposition commonly translated in the phrase, in hope, can be translated either as in or against. And I submit that against makes better sense of the context. Now, if this makes sense, then Paul offers a reason why hope is misdirected when he continues in his discussion in verse 21. Because even creation herself still needs to be freed from the bondage of corruption that Rome currently was spearheading. And that liberation will come as with the freedom of the children of God. So I'm moving through the text, verse 22. Paul seems to think that this is self-evident. He says, for we all know. Because, he and all, because all of his readers have an experience. He knows all of his readers have an experience in suffering. And all have seen the results of Roman misuse and abuse. It is in this context that Paul elaborates the nature of godly hope and its ability to create significant change. It is by and through this hope, Paul says, that salvation comes. Through this hope, salvation comes. 
continuing to follow uh, Paul's line of thought in verses 24 and 25, he clarifies once again, he's not talking about Roman hopes and accomplishments. He's speaking from the perspective of a Jewish follower of Jesus of Nazareth, one of the colonized and so uses language that is coded for recognition by other Jews and Jesus' followers. Now, where would he get that? These would be allusions that are found in his sacred texts, what we would call the Hebrew scriptures. He, he, uh, he can use all the terms that the state affirms, gospel, hope, salvation, but with different meanings. He says hope, uh, hope is not hope already, uh, I'm sorry, hope is not hope already fulfilled. For he says, hope that is seen is not hope. Hope is not passive or, fulfill, or fulfilled by the Roman head of state, but it is an eager longing, eager yearning, Hope is active with its eyes on the horizon, he says, but we eagerly expect with, now, what's the next term? Most translations use the, use the term patience, but I submit that is way too weak. A better, a better term would be fortitude. We eagerly expect with fortitude. Now, the supporting scaffolding of this fortitude is the confidence that God is faithful and will stand by us, walk beside us, and endure affliction with us to the end. In everything, God works for good, for God has called, justified, and glorified. And thank you so much for the song, by the way, this morning. So Paul's words to us are to live our lives hopefully, in hope, confident that in whatever we do, whenever we speak out, however we choose to sanctify our world on behalf of those who have had their voices silenced, we need not allow worry or fear or suffering to stop us in our, cracks, in our, in our tracks. For we are more, he says, than our Roman conquerors through him who loved us. And we can be more than the present authorities as well. We can be more than the prevailing conspiracy theories, more than the multinational corporations, more than the global economic realities. The only thing that can stop us is when we completely and utterly lose hope. <clears throat> because, <clears throat> excuse me, because the means we, that means that we've lost sight of God if we lose hope, even though God will never leave our side. Today, I've tried to give you some contextual tools that will hopefully help us all to allow space for our sacred texts to become a part of this crucial conversation about how we might respond as people of faith to the greed and self-interest that has become institutionalized in almost all of our institutions.
The environment is not the only voice that's been silenced by the political, economic, ideological systems. It's just the softest with the most catastrophic consequences. Racial injustice upon communities of color, stigmatization of gender, neglect of the homeless. This is just to mention a few of the marginalized groups that make it on a somewhat regular basis into our news feeds. All of these share a common positionality of being marginalized and targeted by the dominant discourse today. So last paragraph, uh, and this is the most emotional. <laughs> I've been doing pretty good up to this point, right? <laughs> you know me too well. <clears throat> is it really possible to walk the fence on these issues? The question for, for each of us is how will we respond as individuals and participants in a larger group? As hopeful gen individuals, individuals living in hope, we, we help those we can, we vote our conscience, and we developed a sensitized perspective. I mean, we're all working on that. We should think about the things we purchase, what their carbon footprint is. Think about our vehicles, about our water usage. Think about what kind of food we eat, where it comes from. But in addition, as part of a larger hopeful group, we must create conversation space to allow for as much consensus as possible and then support the collective efforts, efforts as much as possible. We've got solar panels. We have a community garden. We have a rudimentary pantry. And we've got one protest under our belts. These are all great starts. But there is still much work to be done by our group to expand the influence of the gospel that we preach. What I don't think is an option is to sit on the fence because our hope is not in a fence-sitting God, but a God who invites us into partnership of liberation and redemption and who will stand with us wherever that partnership will lead. He or she who sits on the fence today are actually assisting the dominant discourse. He or she who sits on the fence today silently supports the status quo. But our world is crying out for redemption. So as Paul urges us today, in, in, urges us in today's text, love God, hear God's call for us to work together for good. Amen. <laughs>